We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by someone I have been reading periodically for over a decade. He is one of the original chess bloggers in my mind, a Fide master, a chess trainer. Uh, he's been blogging about chess since 2005. He's a state champion of multiple states, Indiana and Nevada, uh, peak USCF rating over 2,400. Uh, he has made many videos for chesslectures.com, Coach Day Scholastic National Championship winning team. And when he is not doing chess training, he has taught philosophy for over a decade at different universities. He's currently working at Ashland University, doing both chess and non-chess activities. But of course, we're here to talk mostly about chess. So let's welcome to the show, FIDE Master Dennis Monacrucis. Welcome, Dennis. Thanks. And I do want to make one minor correction. It's chesslecture.com. Chess lecture. There's only one lecture, yeah, not multiple. That, that's right. Yeah, it's 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 all it's all part of the Borg or something like that. That's right. Okay, my my apologies no for that. Well, Dennis, I'm excited to to finally speak with you. As I mentioned, I've been reading your blog for years, and you um, 
uh, now I'm sort of blogging in terms of uh, the link fest that I'm doing, um, which we'll talk more about later. But since you've been blogging since 2005, I thought that might be a fun moment to start at. If you could describe, obviously, I have some knowledge of this, but you could describe what was going on in the chess world in 2005 and what prompted you to start one of the most thankless jobs of all of the <laughs> thankless jobs in the chess world, blogging about chess. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. So I really appreciate the uh, the chance to, to spend some time with you. And uh, what you're doing is fantastic. So it's it's, uh, it's a really, it, it filled a void in the chess world and a, and a really cool one at that. So good, Thank good, you. good job by you. Uh, yeah. So back in 2005, I think Paul Morphy had just retired from chess. No way. It's not that far. <laughs> right. But uh, speaking of retirements, Kasparov retired, I think, within a, f a few weeks of when I started the blog. And um, the reason why I started it was, as, as you said, I'm, I'm one of the first, and there really wasn't much going on back then. So as, just as a chess fan, I would watch the, these big events. I think it was either, I think it was maybe Vicon Zay of that year, or maybe Lenares is when I started blogging. And I would always find, so I'd watch the games online, and then when it was over, it was sort of like, okay, that's over. The the reports on the website, so there, there was uh, chessbase.com, which is still still exists, but um, it's kind of been eclipsed by, by some other sites. And that was almost all there was. And so, you know, like, think about your favorite sports, right? So you, you, many sports fans, maybe not you, I don't know, but possibly you, so like to watch the pregame, and we get kind of psyched up for it. And then after... There's highlights and there's interviews and there's all this stuff that you, you kind of bask in in, in like the, the after show show. And uh, there was very little of that. And for, for such a rich game, there really wasn't that much that was, let's say, entertaining and educational. I mean, you could buy videos, you could buy instructional videos. But in terms of just some place where you can kind of hang out and, and see what's the latest news and, and chat about it, there wasn't all that much. So after kind of uh, wishing that this was there for, I don't know, being aware of wishing that this was there for a year or two, I thought, oh, why don't I just start writing about it myself? And, and that's kind of what what's what, uh, what propelled it, was just, uh, this is what I wished was there, and so, hey, I'll, I'll just do it. It sounds very familiar. That's ex basically how Perpetual Chess started. I, right. You know, sat around waiting for someone else to do it and <laughs> finally said, okay, I guess guess it has to be me. Well, but we're, we're glad to see you doing it. And so you mentioned it was near the end of Kasparov's reign. Um, what else was going on? Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, I think of things, but... Uh, it's that era, you know, I think of Toilet Gate, I think right. of the disputed world championship, but I don't have the exact timeline down. Like what, what are your biggest memories of those early days? Right. So exactly. So 2005 was when, um, well, Kramnik was still the world champion in the, the, the linear uh, title. And I think, you know, it was maybe, you know, it was, wasn't, yeah, it was Kazim Janov, I think was the, uh, the official FIDE champion at that point. Um, yeah, it was before. Yeah, it was we before should probably explain a little bit right. for newer listeners. Sure. Um, okay, so I'll give the quick rundown. So, yeah. 1993, uh, Short qualified to uh, to face Kasparov. So, uh, breaking finally this long run of Kasparov Karpov matches, and Kasparov and Short decided, nuts to Fide, we're going to take the the, uh, the championship and organize it on our own. And Fide basically said, "Okay, goodbye to you," and they took the two people that Short beat in the candidates which was Kasparov, uh, sorry, Karpov and Timon, 
So Karpov and Timmon played their, their match. Kasparov and Short played their match. And it was split from 1993 until, well, 2007. When, um, or 2000, yeah, 2007, when um, you had the uh, the match tournament in Mexico City, which I attended, by the way. So I, I went with a friend. And, yeah, I want to hear about that. Yeah, so that was, that was fun. Um, but anyway, so in this period, there had been a lot of attempts to reunite. I think there was the, uh, the Prague Agreement, which ended up kind of uh, falling flat. That was an attempt by Sirwan, and it was going to have um, Ponomaryev, who was the, the FIDE champion at that moment when Sirwan cooked this up. So it was going to be Ponomaryev, Kasparov, uh, Kramnik, and I forget who the fourth person was going to be. Uh, but they were going to have like some kind of match tournament, a bit like the old 1948 tournament after Lyekin died in, in The Hague in Moscow um, to, to, to make it work. But that didn't work out either. And so finally, Kramnik uh, kind of made a deal and said, okay, I'm going to get some, some extra privileges here, like I get this rematch. If, or, or I get to play a, a title match after uh, Mexico City if I'm not the winner of it. But basically, it finally got reunited in 2007. And Kasparov, when he quit, part of it was just that he had been hoping Kramnik would give him a rematch just without without playing, mm-hmm. uh, without having to qualify in any way. And Kramnik said, well, you know, a deal's a deal. This this was, you know, not what we agreed to when we played our, when we set up our match. So, no thanks. And, um, and so Kasparov got tired of waiting for a Prague-style reunification or Kramnik giving a rematch, and just, okay, well, I've, I've been here, done that as far as tournament success is concerned, so I'm done. And um, and then you had, again, this this eventual uh, rematch, and that was, of course, Kramnik against Apollo, which was uh, just all, you know, so we've got our scandal now. This was the scandal of that time. Yeah, as someone who was covering it, of course, it's come up periodically on the podcast. But, you know, Dennis, I don't, as we're recording this 11 days before it'll be released uh, in terms of the current scandal, and the news comes fast and furious. So I don't want to get too much into the scale of this scandal. But if you could just compare it to Toilet Gate and maybe give a little context on this, uh, this famed controversy in the Topalov Kramnik World Championship match. Right. So Toilet Gate was. this occurred during that reunification match. And up to that point, Kramnik and Sapolov had friendly relations with each other. So they were, I don't know if they were buddies, but I mean, they always got along fine. There was no real problem. Uh, neither player, or both players, I should say, had, have a good reputation in the chess world. Uh, so this was, you know, not the sort of thing where you were expecting, anyone was expecting some kind of fireworks uh, off the chessboard at the time. So... I forget how many games in this was now, but, uh, well, it started with game two. Yeah, I think that's right. So game two, uh, Kramnik had won game one, and in game two, he was in just all kinds of trouble. Topolov basically missed, okay, it often was referred to as a mate in three. It wasn't mate in three, but it was like mate in three, or he wins everything. And um, Topolov missed that win, and then somehow Kramnik barely escaped and even went on to win the game. And at some point... Shortly after that, Topalov's team, led by Silvio Danilov, uh, accused Kramnik that when he would go to his rest area, so the players would have rest areas where there was a bathroom, but also they could just they had a couch, they could just sit down, look at the game on a screen, and just be away from the board. And Kramnik would often do that. He was kind of pacing his rest area and so on. And um, 
Topal's team just accused Kramnik and said that, okay, he's spending too much time in there and he's pro he's maybe getting moves. And, you know, they looked and there's maybe some cable that's coming in through the, uh, you know, the, the tiles over the, uh, the bathroom and basically more or less accused him of cheating. And anyway, it, it was a, a huge scandal. There was, there was never a shred of evidence. There, there also isn't, let's say Ken Regan style evidence that, right. that Kramnik was cheating either. In other words, you know, d matching his moves with computer moves, there didn't seem to be any reason to think that, that he was uh, getting illicit help. And, and of course, it made chess the butt, no pun intended, uh, of all sorts of jokes uh, in, in, the, in the popular media as well. You know, Toilet Gate kind of lends itself to that sort of thing. So... Um, do you want to jump so in? How would you how would you say the popular media? Obviously, it's been quite a firestorm here. This current controversy, sure. and of course the uh, the anal beads, <laughs> um, you know, right. small sub subplot really just mentioned on a Twitch stream once, and unfortunately, so much mainstream media has right. has run with with that angle right. of the story. Yeah, they'll never get um, to the bottom of it. Right. <laughs> Very well played. Um, so, how does this? Uh, firestorm compared to that one in terms of like media magnitude, Dennis? It seems like this one, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to, th I, I think in general, I think chess has been getting more, more coverage in recent years. So just in keeping with the broader trend, I think it's probably getting a bit more, but that got a lot, but it, it, it also, I think it kind of blew over quickly. So it was more or less the kind of the, the joke of the day or the week. And then it was done. But this one also because it's it's going in multiple stages, and who knows, maybe there'll be a third stage. I mean, Carlson seemed to promise that after the uh, this this tournament is over, which as of this recording, it'll it'll be between the time we're recording this and the time that it airs, um, that he's going to say something. So that might uh, ignite a third a third little explosion in this yeah uh, in this both tale. he and chess.com seem like they're gonna say something at some point so but yeah we shouldn't speculate right um about it too much but yeah i don't know if you saw today dennis there was an onion headline uh <laughs> neiman cheating scandal spirals out of control as magnus carlson's rook found dead <laughs> so, it's really it's really populated the the consciousness when not only is it in the onion but they're not even offering context they're just yeah tons neiman's name right it's just to allow readers to assume they know who this 19 year old number 40 in the world. Right. Yeah. I, I, have, I have more mild jokes prepared. Like, you know, uh, in a game that starts D4, Knight F6, C4, any move, I'm going to say improving over, you know, Neiman Carlson. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which brings us back to the blog because you, one thing I have admired about your blog uh, for years is that, you know, you, you generally take a fairly um, matter-of-fact tone right. and you cover both the events and you annotate the game. So how did you come to, or not always, obviously, right. but how did you come to the decision to, to do both? To, to both cover? Well, because, uh, again, that was part of something that was absent when I started. So a lot of these um, recap sites, it's better now, much better now, although sometimes even, even now it's, it's kind of um, just impassant, so to speak. Uh, you know, I'd be curious about these games, and people weren't analyzing them. So, well, let's let's dig in and uh, and do that too. So, the, the the recap, just you know, who beat whom. Okay, that you can find a million places, but I, I do it just to generally for the sake of, of completion or a completeness. But the the game annotations again, it's I, I'm curious, and and people, you know, some people can can sit and watch the uh, the commentators for five hours. 
but um, most people don't. Generally, I don't. I mean, sometimes I do. If I have a really free day, I'll watch for for a while. But um, you know, you're curious. I mean, these are these great great players playing, and um, it, it's kind of nice to have some insight. And, and another thing too is that often, even when players are watching, they're watching online and they just see, oh, the engine spikes. These guys are idiots, you know, right? Or, or they're geniuses, and uh, you know. So I, I try to 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 give some kind of human understanding of what's going on. Even even if I'm in a rush and I'm largely relying on what the engine says, I'm still at least trying to translate it into, into humanese from, from yeah, the engine. Yeah, I was wondering how you use the, like how it's evolved in terms of how you use the engine. Obviously the engines have gotten a lot stronger yeah, since yes. 2005. Yeah. And how you use them these days. Yeah, so uh, about that. So there was, uh, this, this is kind of a nice, a nice uh, online publication or e-publication called Chess Today that um, Irish Grandmaster Alexander Baburin would, yeah, would classic. And it was there for quite some years. And um, he would have this kind of regular little little column where he would say, what computers can't do or something along those lines. And, you know, kind of laugh, okay, here's some position where it, there's it's a complete fortress, but the computer's saying plus 50 or something like that. And so it's snicker at that or things that weren't weren't so so crazy. And almost all of those now don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they got the positional stuff down, the tactical stuff down, the horizon effect. Well, there's always going to be a horizon effect, I suppose, but it's so far beyond what we're able to, to expose in general that it's, it's kind of meaningless. And, um, you know, there's still some positions where they're going to, you know, maybe miss it a little bit, but by and large, they're, they're doing a fine job. So, again, I, I see the, the point of using the computer is obviously you're doing tactical checks, but it's also... Uh, or, or what you're doing is, again, you're trying to con make this understandable for humans. And it, it, it's, it's tricky. And, and I would say that Stockfish, which is clearly the best engine, ha has kind of made things worse recently with, with the, um, the evaluations. I had a feeling you're going there. Yeah. yeah. The extreme. Right, right. <laughs> extreme so now it's evaluations. like, yeah. So, so, you know, Stockfish thinks, okay, Black has a weak pawn. I'm going to win a 90 moves, but the evaluation is plus three. You know, right. Uh, it just wants bit. you to feel as bad as possible when you don't convert one of those positions. Right, right. So, you know, the thing is, like, Leela's evaluations are more realistic, translating it to a human, but again, Stockfish is a lot stronger. And so there's always these trade offs. But, um, yeah. So again, though, for for the for spectators who are watching, the spe the, the stockfish evaluations are awful because it looks mm -hmm. like you know a, a move that okay, granted, stockfish versus stockfish, yes, it can beat its chest and say I'm going to win every time, but that doesn't translate into a human um, evaluation at all. Yeah. And Dennis, I want to pick your brain about chess improvement, but one more topic on the sort of blog front. I've actually mentioned on this pod before because I've been reading you for a long time, um, but up until recently, I didn't, I at least wasn't aware if there was a way to get it emailed to me. And, you know, I'm like one of these old school blog readers who used to read RSS right. feeds. So I could just, you know, download everything into my brain, basically. But then when Google Reader went gone, right. um, from that point forward, and I got more active on like Twitter and other social media, I started to consume things differently. So when you finally moved to this platform, Substack, which is like the, you know, the hot new That's blogging right. platform, yeah. I guess you could say I was, I was quite excited, because yes. finally, I can get it delivered and don't forget to read your blog. So what participate precipitated your moving to Substack, uh, Dennis? Well, as you said, it's kind of the hot new thing. So there are a lot of people, a lot of uh, Substack blogs that I look at. And so I was like, 
at first I thought, well, it was mostly political people, so I thought, okay, this is just some kind of niche thing. But then I saw, no, people are just kind of moving to this thing in mass. And um, and I had also had, so it was partially that, and partially I would have these kind of regular difficulties with the old blogs provider. And at a certain point it was like, okay, it's always a pain in the neck to do something new, uh, but this seems to be a pretty, pretty friendly um, setup. And this whole thing is just annoying. So let's make the jump. And, and what you said too, that, I, that this can just be automatically mailed to people. You know, I, I knew that would be, would be a hit. Because um, again, it, it has been for me. So I've been, been happy to, to get my info that way as well. Yeah, and obviously I'm using it for the LinkFest, and I'm really impressed with the interface. I mean, mm -hmm. I've you know I use Squarespace for the Perpetual Chess podcast, um, and it's okay, but it's very um, very user friendly and uh, appealing. I'm finding Substack, and I use Mailchimp. I mean, I don't know how interested listeners are in this, but a lot of people are doing this sort of thing, mm -hmm. um, and I find it way better than Mailchimp as well. Right. Yeah, um, no, the, only, the only thing I wish was a little bit different is uh, comment moderation. So basically yeah. all I can do is just delete a comment, period, or, um, but I can't like edit it or someone makes a typo or like uh, Ken Regan, he responded to my thing, but he had accidentally, yeah. he had accidentally mistyped his name. And it's so, like, I couldn't fix that. So he had to just create a new account and, and, and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, no, in general, and, and the old blog was, um, was a Squarespace thing. And so I had kind of a lower tier um, set up there and yeah, it was just a pain. So yeah, this is much, much, much easier, much smoother. Um, I, I also like the interface and, um, and the look. So, yep. Yeah. And we should say, uh, the chess mind is completely free as, as of now. As of now. Um, yeah. And, and we should talk about the Ken Regan thing. Cause I thought it was pretty cool. You, you wrote an open letter asking a few questions right. about how his cheat detection algorithm works and then boom, there he, I mean, right. shout out to Ken. He is pretty accessible, he but is. then there he is in the, uh, in the comments. Right. And, and we're kind of friends. I mean, so not like close friends, but, but we're friends. I mean, I, I've been to his house and, um, so we, we've had interactions over the years. I mean, he's been reading the, the blog for a long time. So did time. he say, why didn't you write a closed letter? Yeah, he had no problem. So he, uh, answered very quickly and yeah and and did he did you feel like so this has been coming up a lot obviously um you know this week fabiano caruano on his new podcast uh gave an expansive interview where he pointed out that there there might be some um what he considers to be some flaws i don't know if flaws is the right word but right. basically he doesn't think that Ken's uh, algorithm may not be sensitive enough or, you know, and it gets to like, whenever you have a model, you tend to like err on the side of caution. Right. Um, so anyway, I mean, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, not being a statistician, but also generally the feedback that Ken gave to your questions. Right. So uh, I'm not a statistician, but I mean, I, I play one on TV, no, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, I have some familiarity, so I'm not, yeah, definitely not a professional by any, any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, I'm, I'm not not full. I'm not math phobic by any means. So I had a, a former life where, I was I was in STEM a little bit. So, um, yeah, I saw a transcript of I think the relevant portions at least of, of what Carolina had to say, and, I mean I don't think Ken would deny that there are going to be false negatives, right? So I, I don't think he's yeah. denying that. I, but but I, I mean well not only would not only do I think it. I mean he said it. I mean that right. that there are certain things that it will catch and other things where. You know, maybe it won't. Um, so, the question is: is how sensitive is it, right? So, what's 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 maybe an acceptable percentage, and how easy is it to figure out? And that's what I was getting at with that first question. 
that I, I asked Ken in the uh, the open letter. Right, I asked did, basically, did you have anyone try to see if they could bust your algorithm? And he said, well, we tried early on, and that was kind of the end of it. And that's that's not good. I mean, um, I mean, I think he he should, if he can, or you know, find volunteers where we're we're trying to bust it, and we can send him send him the data and the players' ratings and so on, and, and see how it goes. Um, especially if he's not taking time usage into account, or I guess he is with the online games. Uh, I mean, like when it's on chess.com or Lee Chess or Chess24, but not not the tournament, the, the regular FIDE games that are merely being broadcast online, as I understand it. So, yeah, no, I, I think that that's clearly something that should be done to try to figure out, you know, how how likely is it that someone can, can uh, beat the system if they're... Because, again, he's released so much information about how the algorithm works that... It, it's a bit of a stationary target, perhaps. Yeah, which of course is why chess.com is so secretive, which of course right. opens them up to criticism. So it's uh yeah, it's a, a slippery slope, but but yeah. I mean in a sense I think it's good to have Ken on the sort of um very transparent side and then, you know, I certainly understand where chess.com is coming from in terms of not being transparent, but as uh Jakob Agard recently said in, in our interview, it's Creating some um, some uh, moral issues in terms of uh, how to deal with cheaters. So, yeah, it's a right. um, difficult topic. Right. I mean, I know they don't say this person cheated. They just merely chase them off the platform, and people <laughs> yeah, guess. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Why? Right. Why ever were they? You know, why? Why are they no longer on there? Yeah. Gosh. Why did their account close right. in the middle of that tournament? That's and right. They never played again. It's, yeah. it's a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well. Dennis, I want to get to some some chess improvement talk. Obviously, okay. you've been lecturing about chess for decades and coaching mm -hmm. uh, adults and kids alike. Right. So, uh, but first, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. Of course, Chessable uses space repetition to help you learn opening sequences, tactical patterns, um, specific endgames, whatever it may be that you need to work on on your game. Uh, some of their latest courses include Understanding Chess Openings Part 3 by none other than Big Vladdy, former world champion, Grandmaster Vladimir Kramnik, sharing his lifetime of expertise on uh, how to respond to various E4 possibilities. So be sure to check that out. And they have a, a free preview for Chessable Pro members. So please just remember to make it part of your routine to go to chessable.com and check out uh, all of their new offerings, which are available both for free and for purchase. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back, and we're ready to talk some chess improvement, Dennis. Obviously, uh very strong and very well read in the topic of chess. But my first question, Dennis, is our mutual friend, Brian Karen of the Chess Book Collectors Facebook group, uh, tells me that you you were a strong young player, but you, you quit chess at some point for a period of time? I did, yes. So um, I started playing, well, I learned how to play, I think, when I was eight. So this was after the, the Fisher boom, or well, not after, this was after Fisher won the title. Um, I would say it's still in the, during the Fisher boom. And started 
really getting interested around when I was 10. And I didn't, didn't play any tournaments until I was 13 because I didn't know tournaments existed and, um, or that they, they existed where I was. And um, so my first rating was, well, I played in three tournaments all kind of back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, and I ended up 18-11, which wow. is pretty good. Monster. You know. yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, again, I had been playing for, you know, probably three years. I mean, not, not in tournaments, you know, and no coaching, but, but playing at a chess club and, and reading books and, you know, still kind of working on the game on my own as best as I could. I'm sorry, how old did you say you were? So 13. You know, nowadays you're a okay. grandmaster by the time you're 13 or you're, you know. You're, you're yeah. not that interesting, but back then that was pretty good being 18. <laughs> that was 11, really 13, good, yeah. yeah. And um, so became a master when I was 17 and um, was still kind of making decent improvement. So I was pretty close to 2,400 when I was 22. Like my last, actually already at this point I had, I had given up the game, but like my, my last tournament that I played in just because I had promised to the organizer I would play, I um, beat Elliot Winslow, who is an IM, in like mm-hmm. 20 moves. And I drew with Walter Brown when he was still the legend. Yeah. Do you have any story to go with it? Time trouble? Or yeah. Well, the funny anything? thing is, you know, so of course he did all this spastic stuff with, you know, where he's just kind of twitching and moving fast and hands go up, hands go down. But, um, yeah, it wasn't actually that, that, uh, distracting somehow. So I, I don't know whether it was lucky or, or bad luck. I don't know, but I, I played a lot of strange opponents over, over my time when I was young. Um, I remember there was one player I played in, in a tournament in Reno where he would just all of a sudden like flap his arms and like slam them against the table. And he would just do this repeatedly. Wow. Like the more the more intense he got, he would start doing it. And, you know, I would ask him to stop or ask the director to ask him to stop. And he would kind of, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And, and, but it would, it would again kind of build up more and more over time. So I think playing this kind of uh, colorful cast of characters over the years and, and having heard about Brown being super nervous and all of that, it actually wasn't so bad when, when I played him. But um, yeah, it was, it was it was a really interesting game. He was he was polite. I mean, he didn't um, you know he didn't uh, say to to kind of refer to Neiman again. You know, oh, how could I draw with this idiot? I'm so embarrassed. You know, <laughs> what, I'm such a loser. <laughs> nothing, nothing like that. And um, yeah, so no, he was he was he was perfectly gracious, and um, it was an interesting game. So. Anyway, I was, you know, up and coming. I uh, nearly qualified for the U.S. Junior three times. So I think, um, you know, I think at least once I was an alternate, maybe twice. And then the third year, I thought, ah, for sure, I've, I've qualified. And it turned out that because of the, uh, the date for the World Junior, and this is a rule they've changed since then, uh, but I was like two days too old. Oh, but, but not two days too old for the U.S. Junior, but two days too old for the World Junior. So if I won, I would be ineligible. And I was, you know, pleading with the guy, you know, I, this is something I've been working for for years to get into this thing. I said, you know, well, if I win, let the runner up go. You know, I, I wasn't a favorite anyway, but, you know, if I win, let this. No, no, can't do that. Sorry. Uh, so, huh. yeah, that was that was kind of aggravating. Anyway, so 22. And uh, at this point, my my Christian faith had becoming had, had been uh, more and more important to me. And it wasn't that I said, oh, I'm a Christian. I can't play chess. Nothing like that. It was just that I, I kind of woke up one day and realized that I hadn't played chess in, in a couple of months or I hadn't looked at chess in months and didn't care. So mm-hmm. it was just that it sort of disappeared. Yeah. And, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and, I was just, and, and it, it kind of stayed disappeared. I, I did play in, um, I think, one or two really small tournaments in California when I was going to grad school there, like three, two or three years later. And that was kind of the end of it 
until uh, till New York. So it was just in time to, to help me blow up my dissertation that I <laughs> that I got back into chess. So I uh, th this was when the uh, Kasparov Anand match took place. So it was like a first little little dip back in the pool in uh, ninety five. So eighty eight is when I had stopped, and then I played in these few tournaments. I think in ninety two maybe, and then um, so ninety five. I watched the match. I, I discovered ICC, which is, you know, again, terrible for someone who's supposed to be doing their dissertation research. And um, and then, oh yeah, so I, I had gotten a couple of uh, papers, um, philosophy papers, accepted into a grad journal. And the editor said, you know, I'm accepting them, but, you know, there's going to be some minor changes. Give me a call. And I, I called, and the answering machine uh, picked up instead of him, and it said, this is so-and-so from Chess in the Schools. And oh, what's this thing? So, huh. so then I started working with chess in the schools, which was which was great, but again, kind of sidetracked me back into chess, and that's where I, I kind of started going against. So this is like ninety seven, ninety eight, uh, ninety seven is when I started working with them. Okay, and did and you? Yeah, and I think we just missed each other at chess in the schools. And uh, did you? Um, did you finish your dissertation or? Nope. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It seems like there's a. There's a tradition now in the chess world of uh, maybe philosophy dissertations in particular. I'm thinking of um, John Hartman from U.S. Chess and uh, J.J. Lang, my fellow chess podcaster. Okay. Um, they, yeah. they get into philosophy and then yeah, they don't they don't quite uh, yeah. finish. So I, so I have a couple um, of I have an M.A. and an M.Phil in philosophy, but yeah, the M.Phil is based okay. in all the dissertation degree from from Fordham University. Okay, and. Um, and I mean, it sounds like obviously once you did get into chess as a teen, it sounds like you climbed up the ranks pretty quickly. Um, what do you attribute your success to? Were you a book guy? Were you a just play a ton guy? How how did you improve, Dennis? Right. Yeah. Well, I definitely wasn't a computer guy because <laughs> they, 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 they yeah. weren't very good back then. Um, books definitely. I mean, but but I played a ton too. And and one thing I think I that was kind of helpful. So. There was a group of about four or five of us. I think I was the youngest of the of the bunch, but we were all pretty close in strength. Um, I was generally a little bit ahead of them, but there were occasions where they were a little bit ahead of me. And, you know, it was one of these uh, rising tides lifting all the boats. But where I ended up kind of exceeding them, so like the, the number two guy out of our group made master briefly a couple of times. And... Everyone else made it to expert, but but didn't make it to master. And I think I did two things that they didn't do. So we all looked at books, but what I did, I, I think I spent a more time on books with with books than they did. And the second thing is that I would look at just everybody's games. So my best friend, the guy who ended up number two out of the uh, out of this this bunch was a big Fisher fan. And, and who was it? Right. His chess is great. Right. And uh, so he would look at Fisher's games regularly and look at openings and other, other stuff too. But like I went through every world champions games that I could get my hands on. So Reinfeld's book of Capablanca's best games and Elyekin's two volume autobiographical work on his games and um, Bofinix, my hundred selected games. And, um, and and so on, just for everybody. Tall's life and games. Um, I had the, uh, the at some point I got the red book on Spassky, the old Weltgeschichte. Ah, oh, Fisher's favorite. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Because Fisher mentioned it, so I, I finally found it at some point. Um, and it, it's just basically a database. There's no annotations. It's just games with diagrams after every five moves. But it was convenient back then uh, when there weren't when there weren't databases, and uh, you know we didn't have the uh, the uh, 
the Moscow Chess Club card file or anything like that. So, um, but but you name it. I had Karpov's. I went through Karpov's collected games through '74. That that old book, and and the uh, Wade and O'Connell book on Fisher, and so on, and uh, Vic Vasiliev's book on Petrosian. So all these books, and I would go through them. It didn't matter if this is my style or what I perceived to be to be my style or not. Just looking at all of these games gave me a reasonably well-rounded chess education, and and also old tournament books, and and I mean I had in-game books and other stuff too. And opening books, of course, but but just looking at so many games, and, and so the advantage that, that that gave me was that I, I knew more openings, not necessarily well. I mean, certainly not by contemporary standards. I mean, players of, of my rating now, I think, know much more about the opening than I did back then. But by comparison, I think I was in really good shape. And again, stylistically, it helped me. So, and the other thing I did, so. The, the the friend that I mentioned, the number two guy. Uh, you got to say his name at this point. Okay, I'll, I'll say times. Jeff. So so Jeff. <laughs> okay. Um, so my my friend Jeff was a a very tactical guy, a, a cheapo artist. You know, uh, love mm -hmm. love tricks. In fact, so here's a sidetrack. So I don't know how long this. I, I may do too many sidetracks that the podcast no, will no. go on forever. But um, one of my last tournaments, or actually, I think it was my last tournament. Uh, at one point in one of the games I had a really bad position and you know it was, it was if I lost it would you know put a damper on it but it had been a very good tournament so one, one thing I did to kind of help motivate me uh, both let's say intellectually in the sense of looking for good moves but also psychologically is I decided to ask myself what would Jeff do <laughs> <laughs> and so I would just look for you know any trick I could any tactical possibility and if nothing else it put me in a good mood and, uh, you know, I ended up saving the game, too. So, uh, again, it gave me the right mindset for this. But anyway, so he's like this this, this tactics lover and a, a better tactician, certainly at the time. I, I Probably at my best, I became a better tactician than him. But certainly when we were all kind of growing up together, he was, you know, he's the tactical specialist. And then we had another friend named Daniel who you, you mentioned uh, that you might might um, do a podcast with Ulf Anderson. Well, this guy was like our Ulf Anderson. Wow. So. You know, he would play these very quiet openings, just, you know, gets try to get some tiny advantage and then just, you know, sits flash you to death and win an 80 moves. You know, that, that was his thing. And Jeff hated playing Daniel. Actually, most of those those guys hated playing Daniel <laughs> because, you know, these openings were slow. They, they were, you know, no tactics. And again, there's be these grinds against Fianchetto and double Fianchetto openings. Well, I can't say that I really enjoyed playing Daniel all that much either, but I played him, and in part because he was such a pain in the neck to play. And so the result of all of this was that I became pretty good at all of these. So I wasn't as as good a, a an Ulf Anderson clone as as Daniel was, but I was you know let's say eighty percent, eighty five percent, and I wasn't as good a tactician and cheapo artist as Jeff was, but again maybe eighty five percent, and. You know, I, I could do this with all the people in the group. So we had someone who might be like a proto Morozovich guy. And anyway, by being willing to play all these guys and 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 embrace the suck, as they say in the military, uh, of you know facing these unpleasant styles, I became able to to kind of shape shift against all of them. So when I play against Jeff, I just make it nice and boring, and he would would self destruct at some point because of that. And against Daniel, I could hang with this style well enough. But then when the tactics came. I would be better than be better than him at that. So I think, in addition to this kind of broad 
broad, um, uh, let's say, broad book learning should be a better way of putting it. Uh, in addition to, to that, steeping myself in the history of the game, uh, this willingness to, you know, play people who are difficult and to, you know, embrace in some sense all these different styles made me more adaptable, a little bit more universal. And I think that, at the very least, practically made me uh, a stronger player than, than my peers. It's like uh, the, the fox and the hedgehog parable. You you avoided specializing and and were able to to get better by uh right by well having a wide range of skills right although and I, i'm sure studying the games helped too although right. the classic right although i would say i had preferences so it's not that that i'm let's say universal by nature but rather i was just willing to again like i said i didn't enjoy playing daniel any more than those guys did right but, but i was just more willing to do it and, yeah. and i benefited from that and how, as someone who's still teaching chess, as you say, chess certainly has evolved since those days. Mm -hmm. um, how do you tie that together in terms of the advice you give to your students? Like the, the you know, the proverbial, I have, I have an hour a day. How should I spend it? Question. Like, what, what do you advise for people? Right. Well, if you only have an hour a day, just do what you want to do with your hour. But, but yeah. I mean, to the extent that you can, you can devote more time. I mean, I'd say one thing you, you should do is if you, you kind of get stuck when you plateau, you got to do something different, um, and in many cases, it's it's learning more chess, uh, not more of the same chess, but but more. So, you know, there are often the, these gaps, for instance. So, I have a, a pretty strong adult um, student, and he never went through an e4, e5 phase as black. And so, there's a whole bunch of positions where, if his repertoire ends up getting him somewhere that's kind of like those positions, he plays it really cluelessly. By comparison mm -hmm. to his strength, I mean the guy's been a master; he's a, a good expert, but he plays these positions much more weakly, and I think he would benefit greatly by diving into that world. Maybe even, you know, taking taking three months and just studying that and playing it. Just play a bunch of blitz games, learn to play again. E forty five is black, and, and and switching your your repertoire. So don't don't get caught up in saying, ah, I'm. I'm a Magnus Carlsen or I'm a Mikhail Tall or something like that. Just, okay, you, you can play this kind of position pretty well for your rating. Okay, now go learn this. So, you know, being willing to switch, not, not thinking, not always being worried about, let's say, maximizing your current skill set. Okay, but developing other things because not only does it give you more options, but also it will help you in the long run with even your current skill set. Like you'll, you'll know more about how to play the positions that you get into okay. um, as well as just, I think being kind of useful to, um, to not get into ruts intellectually. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you have a favorite player slash favorite style? Well, the, the funny thing is, so my, my two favorite players, at least um, for a long time, uh, let's say for my formative years are tall, mm -hmm. which, you know, is hardly original and Petrosian. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. I, I thought about this recently, and I think there is one thing that they both have in common. And the thing that they have in, that they both have in common is that they do what they can to make their opponents irrelevant. Interesting. So for Tall, it was just, I'm going to just make this mess, and I don't care what you're doing. For yeah. Petrosian, it's, I'm going to dominate you so to such an extent that you can't do a single thing on the chessboard. Right. So it's just, I mean, in some sense, I mean, you're trying to win a game is what you're doing, but, but it's, it's the degree to which they're, again, not just trying to win, but just 
trying to make their opponents disappear in some sense by by what they're doing. Right. That's so, yeah. That's a great insight. Yeah. So they're that's interesting. Yeah, their opponents become irrelevant in two completely different ways, but they become irrelevant. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And do you feel like you've pulled that off in, in your game <laughs> and at your level? Um, on, on good days, sure. On, on, on good days. But, uh, of course, you know, there, there, there are notches ahead of me. By the way, I got to play Tall once in a, in a simul, but I played him once. And um, Let, that, was, that was interesting. Yeah, how'd it go? Let's hear about well, it. Well, okay. So there's a, a small backstory. So uh, do you know who Kamran Shirazi is? Yeah. Okay. So Shirazi, for those of you who don't know, is uh, an international master. He lives in France now. He was uh, originally from, from Iran, and then he lived in the United States for, for a number of years. And I, I played him three times in the U.S. Um, in tournaments. So I, I won the first two, lost the third. So the second game, um, I decided to, uh, to play the modern against him. All right. So you all know what the modern is. And it was the, 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 the modern with A6, not the modern with C6 which is kind of, um, so I, I had met Alexi Root years, years before that, and she had taught me about this system. Because I guess that's in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, everyone liked that. So I think Sierra One played it once upon a time, and it was, uh, I think, Duncan Suttles, who was maybe the player who introduced it to the area. But again, it was kind of like that area's, you know, so Vancouver, Seattle, those guys, that was one of their, their sort of pet openings. So she told me about it, and I thought it was kind of interesting. So I, I started playing it every so often. And I played against Shirazi and, and I won. And Shirazi, for those who don't know, is like this, you know, kind of micro tall. Um, sacrifices all over the place, plays crazy openings, loves complications, and tries to just, you know, bamboozle his opponents and, and win with, with tactics. So I played this against Shirazi in a, in a tournament game, slow game, and I beat him. So I figured, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this against tall. And the thought is, of course, Tal is much stronger than Shirazi, but he has much less time than Shirazi. Hmm. Uh, this this idea did not work at all. So <laughs> Tal Tal just obliterated me, and I should have just learned from his you know games with people like Tringov and and others who who played the Peerts against him and and got uh, obliterated. That that the, <laughs> the, the, the it, it was not a, a scalable issue. So it was more just his his intuition, his ability to know what's going on in these positions. It didn't matter for that in that context whether he had just seconds to, to think about it or minutes. And do you still have the game? I, I don't, unfortunately. So, yeah, when I when I had quit, I like threw out almost everything I had, which uh, drives me nuts yeah. now. Brian mentioned that yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that 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 in particular is a bummer. Yeah, it is. It, you know, now when you run tall through the engine, the right. engine just laughs. Right. So and, I'd like to see what it says about that game. Actually, that's not entirely true. So um, if if you look at um, Caroli's books on on tall. Um, actually, surprisingly, he, he's more accurate than, than the, the kind of um, the caricature would, would have you think. I don't know. In my sample, I guess I'm thinking mainly of games from the life and games of Mikhail Tal. But okay. um, at least if you compare him to the uh, to someone like Petrosian, which of course is unfair because like the engines are going to like this style where you can't make a big mistake, right? Um, or it's harder to make a big mistake. So, right. But anyway, yeah. Uh, but, in any event, yeah. The one thing, one thing is kind of uh, funny. So. The, the event where I played, the, the silo where I played Tall, there's, um, it, the, the guy's name is David Glicksman, or I think he goes by David Lucky now. Um, so he had a video of, of, of this with, with him, and it, it shows a lot of the game with Tall going around. And it's just like, you know, it's every time it goes to, to his board, 
it shows. So I think I was like one board out of the camera for this video. So it was like, ah, nuts. You know, if it was just one more, maybe I could have reconstructed the game, but that, that didn't happen. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there. I can't. I can't think of a way that you'll get that game back. No, sorry, no. Sorry, I mean, Dennis. yeah, I don't know if there's some sort of hypnosis where there there's some memory where I could 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 piece it together, but no, I'm I'm sure it's gone. Yeah. All right. Well, Dennis, I want to move to other topics, but just to to wrap up your uh, chess improvement advice: shake things up, change your routine. Um, are you an advocate of like doing lots of puzzles? I mean, it sounds yes. like you're you're kind of as an academic, you have more of a big picture approach. But no, no, no. I, I think so. One of the things that I, I really believe, especially if you're not working with a coach, job number one is when, when you're when you're up and coming until you're, I don't know, seventeen hundred maybe. I used to say eighteen hundred. Um, ratings are a little bit different now, but, um, tactics, 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 tactics. So when I was a kid, I mean, this is sort of hyper nerdy and I'm sure I didn't do it all the time, but, um, I remember there would be these long bus rides in the morning and most of the kids on the bus were sleeping and I would be there with Reinfeldt's thousand and one brilliant sacrifices and combinations, just trying to see how much of this, this, uh, book I could go through each, each trip. And, and so, no, I mean, I, I did tactics, you know, like, like a maniac when I was a kid. And, and really, you want to be able to spot just ordinary tactics just instantly. I mean, if you can't do that, then it doesn't matter what kind of positions you get in the, in the opening. You're generally just going to, it's going to fail. You're, you're going to mess up somewhere. So, I mean, that, that's critical. And, and then, of course, you, you keep uh, looking for harder tactics as you, as you get stronger. But no, no, I think, I think that's essential. I think that uh, players who focus primarily on openings before, I mean, not to downplay openings, so you need to know something. But if you're if you're doing openings before, if openings are your main focus before you're let's say seventeen eighteen hundred, uh, rather than tactics, you're you're going astray. Yeah, and I get that people get tired of hearing that. I think. Yeah, well, but truth the truth hurts. To quote Ben Feingold. Right. Um, well, yeah. you know, I I mean, I'm there are better players than I am, but I mean, I'm twenty four hundred doing it this way. If you're if you're twenty four hundred and you just studied openings and never did tactics, well, okay, you know. More power to you, but in general, the the, the pattern is you, you got to master these these basics. And again, it's not not that you should never look at openings. Of course, you should, but just that shouldn't be your your first priority. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Dennis, we need to take one more break to hear from our sponsors. And uh, next up, I want to talk a bit about the U.S. Uh, championship, which is coming soon. I've been playing a bit of Blitz lately, and whenever I'm active online, it's fun to go to aimchess.com and ask their almighty algorithm to give me some insights from my games. It scrapes the sites, the playing sites automatically, and gives you actionable intel. In my case, the real takeaway this time was I got a 7% in resourcefulness in recent games. Um, that's not very good. I need to get better at that. I need to fight harder when I'm losing in a blitz game, look for tricks. And of course, Aim Chess, as it highlights various aspects of your game, strengths and weaknesses, uh, shows you positions from the game so that you can practice, you can review tactics that you missed uh, and learn lots in a fun way when you review. So please check out aimchess.com if you decide to subscribe, use the code perpetual30. You can also use the link in the show description to get the same discount 30% off at aimchess.com. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And Dennis, uh, if no uh, earth shattering chess events push you back, this podcast will come out on uh, October 4th, which is also the day the U.S. championship is slated to start. Now, I'm not particularly provincial when it comes to chess, but I find this tournament particularly interesting, particularly because of the entries who are not really from the U.S. Right, right. But but first and foremost, will you be covering this on the chess mine? Yes, I will. So, And for the same reason, or I would say the same thing, that I'm not particularly provincial either. There are plenty of American events that I ignore, but the U.S. Championship is basically a super GM event nowadays, so I cover it. Yeah, and I did manage to chase down who the field will be. Uh, it appears from what I have read online that Nakamura will not be playing, which was the main thing that I think was a bit up in the air. So for the open section of the U.S. closed championship, um, so what that means is men and women are theoretically uh, allowed. The participants are Aronian, Caruana, so Dominguez, Shanklin, Jeffrey Zhang, Hans Neiman, Sam Sevian, Ray Robson, Darius Swartz, Awunder Liang, Christopher Yu, Elshin Moradi, Moradi Body, sorry, Elshin, and uh, Alex Lenderman. Okay. Now, out of those players, Dennis, is there anyone you're particularly interested to see? Well, it'll, it'll certainly be interesting for other reasons to see what happens with you-know-who. <laughs> yeah, with Mr. Neiman. That's yeah. right. But... Um, I mean, I always have a little bit of fondness for Wonder because I played him um, once. So and that was a, was a good hard-fought draw back when he was, I think, two years old or something. No, he was 10 or 11. <laughs> right. Seems like he was two. Um, I mean, Caruana's really come on hard times the last year or so. I mean, it's I don't, I don't know if, what what's happened there. But um, so before, I mean, certainly he would have been the favorite and... and um, in, in one sense, the most interesting player. I, I always like watching So. I mean, he, he kind of, he doesn't have this really flashy style, but he's just so amazingly consistent. Um, so that's always, that's always um, fun as well. And, uh, you know, Dominguez too. I, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I always expect him to have some breakout tournament. And he, he has a very, very appealing style as well and plays a lot of sharp openings. So... You know all, all these the, the three big guys that are that are there. Am I forgetting somebody? Those are right. Like the three twenty-seven fifty plus guys, or is there another? It's just just them, uh, right? Aronian. Oh, and Aronian, of course. Yeah, and Aronian is is always actually Aronian. I would say is the most entertaining player yeah. out of those four, to be to be sure. Although, yeah, so I, I would still probably make so a small favorite at this point out of that, but it's such a small favorite that. Yeah, it, so it seems like he has the highest floor, at least. Right. Although Dominguez has a high floor, too. Right. But, but uh, Aronian and Caruana are uh, higher highs but lower lows. Um, yeah, and I'm interested, you know, I feel like, I mean, of course, the Neiman storyline, and, and he's ascending so quickly that obviously right. he could win it. Um, but also, you know, Jeffrey Zhang, Sam Sevian, Ray Robson, mm-hmm. I feel like those three guys are, are so strong, and this is a good stage for them. So it'd be nice to see. 
uh, any or all of them step up. Right. I mean, it's, no, absolutely. It's a chance for, for them to break out. I mean, it's, you know, if they win that, then they, they kind of, they'll, they'll probably get their year of invitations the way, yeah. the way Neiman <laughs> is or the way Shanklin did, um, last year and so on. Yeah. It's, it's tough at the top. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, it really it's, is. It's, I'm surprised we haven't uh, imported any new, new GMs, you know, in the last uh, five weeks or, or anything. You know. What's your, so I saw the, when the Olympiad was going on, obviously you were blogging about it. And as I alluded to, I'm not, I'm, I'm more as a global chess fan. I'm right. following it, especially now I have to say, I, I, you know, I'm a big Aronian fan, mm -hmm. but I don't think of him as a, like an American player. Right. Um, right. But, but it seemed like you were really, you were rooting for the U S and the Olympiad. Is that fair? Um, I would say in a general way, but actually I, I was very quickly much more enthusiastic about, about India too and Uzbekistan. Yeah. Um, as, as a chess fan. So yeah. I mean, of course I wanted the United States to do well, but chess wise, no, I was actually, I mean, again, very quickly. I mean, I think it was like round three or four. I mean, I was already, okay. Yeah. Maybe the U S but no, these, these two teams, especially India too, I thought, um, I thought they were, were going to win and came within, you know, just Gukesh, uh, steaming, you know, if he didn't just blow up in the game with, um, Abdusadarov, they would have won. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was that was that was an amazing thing, and yeah, the U.S. just didn't play well, and it was disappointing that Nakamura didn't play. Um, I mean, I guess he, the issue was that he would be board five, or at least at the time they were making the pairings, um, and he didn't want to be that low. And okay, I understand, but same time, you know, it's it's the Olympiad, better to represent your country. I mean, think of Fisher, so Fisher in the USSR versus the World match, where where Larson you know, said, oh, I should be board one, even though, well, there weren't ratings, but I mean, clearly yeah. the, the, the lifetime record was, was in Fisher's favor, both I think head to head and also in terms of performance. But Larson had had a couple of good years while Fisher was not playing and Fisher, to everyone's surprise said, okay, I'll play board two. And, and it worked out. And they both, they both uh, beat their, their, their opponents. So it would have been nice if Nakamura had done that, but yeah, and of course it would be nice to have him in the U.S. Championship Absolutely. as well. Yeah, especially yeah, with I him mean, having he, played so well. I mean, yeah, and, and you know he was quick to point out that he wasn't retired around the time of the candidates. But now we we have to wonder when we'll get to see him play again, right? Um, at, at least in a classical setting. Although I get it, he's got he's got a good gig. He, he does, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know it's, it it won't go away. People people have loved watching him play online even before streaming for. Since he was a, a little tyke, I mean, I remember when he was ten years old, he was he was already a, a terror on ICC back then. Yeah. Back when ICC was, you know, the the server. Yeah, those were the days. Yeah. The the Internet Chess Club is still going strong, still exists at least. Yep. Um, all right. Well, Dennis, as we look towards wrapping up, we have two uh, two questions from uh, people I believe you you know okay. related to your own illustrious career. <laughs> uh, first one is from a Patreon supporter and friend of the pod, uh, John Fernandez. Oh. Um, and John says, ask him to tell you about his immortal pawn. Or no, sorry. Wrong question. We're getting to the immortal pawn game. Right. John's question is, how does it feel to have played the most amazing chess game of all time, Monocrucis Baccarola Parsippany 1999, which we have to, I looked at the game, but we have to give context for listeners. Yeah. So this, this is, I'm, I'm glad he knows that game. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, John is, yeah, he was a good guy. And, um, one, one cool thing. Yeah. He was there when I played the, the other game, the Dawson game too. 
And okay. uh, so it's like the picture, if, if you see the picture of me, that is, if you have chess base and you pull up one of my games, there's a picture. So that was taken by Fernandez after the Udasin game. So, so there you go. So there's a little, we'll get to the Udasin yeah, game, but, but, but just cause you mentioned John Fernandez. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So the Barcarola games, this was in the amateur team, I don't know, 98 or 99. And I was on a strong team. I mean, we were, our, our, our average rating was like 2190 something. And uh, this was, I think in, in round two. And um, so I'm playing this, this guy, Lou Barcarola, he's 2170 or something. I was 2409, I think at the time. And the game, so like E4, E5, Knight F3, um, Knight C6. And for some reason I played Knight C3, uh, D6, D4, Bishop G4. And I played D5, he played Knight to D4. So my Knight on F3 is pinned by the Bishop on G4. And I was originally gonna play Bishop to E3, I think. And then I started thinking, well, what about Knight takes D4? This, this could be interesting. And- So this is a queen sacrifice for listeners. Right, so I'm giving up my queen for, for two pieces. Couple of checks, so, but it's 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 no good. But I'm looking at it; it's interesting. And the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm kind of talking myself into this. And it's completely irresponsible because you know I'm I'm board one on my team. It's a team tournament. It's not right. it's not <laughs> me just you know being a goofball on my own. And but the thing is, the more I thought about it, the more I just ah, I've got to do this. You know, I'll, I'll you know how often do you get the chance to do this? And so I played knight takes d4. And the, the remarkable thing is, like, I had to keep finding new ways of, of keeping the initiative going in this game. So I'm, I'm sacking pawns, sacking the exchange, and, like, at some point I sack another piece and a rook, and it just goes on and on. And so, you know, and this guy's playing great. He's defending. He's, you know, not maybe playing perfectly, but playing really well and c- keeps neutralizing all of my, you know, every every new bit of the bag of tricks, all on Mikhail Tall, I come up with. He's got an answer. He's got an answer. And he's also getting in really big time trouble, and he survives that too. So, uh, and 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 in the meantime, I've managed to promote a pawn, so it's a it's a queen ending, but I'm down I think three pawns or something like this. And the team situation is it's one and a half to one and a half at this point. <laughs> so you know, wait wait or no, sorry, we're up two to one. We're up two to one. But I mean, if I lose, it's a tied match. So, um, you know, it's so he's made the time control by you know with, with just seconds to spare. And, you know, the team's outside waiting, you know, they want to go to, to dinner. I said, well, you know, just, it's not going to be long. And, um, you know, I, I make one more sack. I make a pawn sack. And so I have a queen and a pawn. He's got a queen and four pawns at this point, three, three or four pawns. So I, I play B3, B4, and he takes it. And he, I think he saw that there was a stalemate idea, but I think he saw the wrong stalemate idea. Because the, the wrong stalemate idea, he has a way to get out. But the right stalemate idea, which of course I had in mind, and it's kind of an unusual one, so it's not with my king in the corner. Uh, it's with with my king, I think, is on e8, and um, so I play like his king's on g6. I have a queen on d5, and he's got his queen on I think c7. So I played before. He took my last pawn with a pawn, and I played queen to d6 check. So he, he has to take my queen, otherwise I take his queen and I win. But queen takes and it's stalemate. So his queen's on d6, king's on g6, my king's on e8. <laughs> And so it was amazing. So I, I sacrificed two queens in the game, and I, and I sacrificed a rook. I sacked an exchange and, and a bunch of other miscellaneous other things too. And, and the poor guy, because, I mean, again, he defended so well and survived the, the, the tricks and time trouble and all of that. And then, like, my last trick, he, he falls for. 
Yeah, that's funny because I looked at the game. It was in chess space, in my chess space. So I looked at it today and it didn't have your opponent's reading. And I was thinking like, this guy played pretty well considering the circumstances. Right. Um, And one question I have for you. So, okay, you played this sacrifice. You sacrificed your queen on move five. The engine gives it like a minus three or something today, which actually is not a disaster, you know, for for a queen sack. Um, Did you feel like it's probably unsound? Like, were you like totally out of book? And did you feel like it's probably unsound? Or like, what was your mindset? So, no, this had nothing to do with book. Um, Like, I played knight to c3 because I I had chatted with Fedorowicz at one point. He thought, oh, you should try the scotch four knights. So I was going to try a scotch four knights in this tournament. And, but the guy didn't play knight c6 on move three. So, and no, I had no idea what was going on there. Um, so no, after his third move, it was just me playing chess at the board. And you, but I mean, sorry for the variations, listeners. Yeah. We'll keep this quick, but you knew you were going to play bishop g5 check and king. Yeah, you know, I mean, take. of course I saw, I mean, I saw something. I mean, it wasn't. Okay. Yeah, but I knew his king was getting Right. I knew his king was yeah. getting f6 and I'm getting some checks and. I may, maybe maybe even saw the h4 h6 bishop g5 check idea. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah, fascinating game, and I'll link to it for listeners to check it out. Thanks for for bearing with us, those of you still sure. listening. <laughs> now, next next story is a right. uh, gr- legendary grandmaster here in the U.S. used to rack up tournament win after tournament tournament win. Uh, Leonard Udasin, and uh, you had a, a really beautiful <laughs> beautiful win. This beautiful uh, mass of pawns gathered in the center of the board. Um, and Brian Karen said that you have a story to go along with that victory as well. Right. Well, speaking of Brian, I mean, I was I, I had left New York the year before, so I was I was living in Indiana. Um, I was doing a fellowship at Notre Dame, still still trying to finish this uh, this dissertation. Excuse me, that didn't uh, that didn't actually finish. Um, but I was there. I was back in New York for a few weeks during the summer because Brian had invited me to do a chess camp with him out on Long Island. And so I knew about this New York Masters tournament that, that Greg Shahadi was running um, each week, whatever was on Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, maybe Thursday. I don't remember what day of the week it was. But so he was running it, and these were cool. I mean, I would watch these events every week on, on ICC and, and see these guys. And as you said, Udawson would just rack up wins all the time there. I mean, he was just completely dominating. And, and Udawson, I mean, he was, I think, also a two-time candidate. Um, I mean, th- those. I mean, he was a little bit past his peak years in in two thousand and two when I played him, but still very strong. And um, anyway, so I was watching these, and so I decided, well, I'm gonna. I, I took the train in from Long Island to uh, to Manhattan to to go and watch this in person. And I mean, I'm exhausted. It was like you know, summer. It's, it's July. It's you know, it's hot. I'm sweating. And again, I just wanted to kind of watch for for an hour or two and then go back out. But. Greg Shahadi said, oh, you know, hey, Dennis, uh, we've got an odd number of players. Will you, you know, would you be willing to play a filler game? And I didn't really want to, but, you know, he, he twisted my arm and I decided, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll play. And then, oh, and guess what? <laughs> You're playing you Dawson on, on board one, you know, congratulations. And so at first, you know, I thought, oh, come on. And then I realized, well, no, this is a cool opportunity. I've got nothing to lose. So let's, let's just enjoy it and, and have fun. And uh, and I did. So it was a, it was a Schliemann. I, I played with Black in the game, and um, I think at, at first I was okay. But but I, I made I, I kind of got into a little bit of positional trouble, and my my uh, solution to this was to sacrifice a piece for a couple of pawns. And there were a couple of ways he could have taken it. One way would have been better, but the way he did it, I got this giant center, this 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 enormous mass of pawns in the center of the board, and. 
the computer is not thrilled with my sacrifice, but practically it was very good. I mean, this guy is, you know, 2600 GM and he couldn't figure out what to do with it. In fact, I was just making progress through the game as it went on with this, again, massive uh, pawn center. And as the game get, goes on and we're both getting into time trouble, these pawns are just slowly marching up the board. And, and finally, at one point, so I, and then I sacrificed another exchange. So I'm down a rook for, I don't know, two, three pawns. But at one point near the end of the game, I've got pawns on e2, d2, and c2, and then another pawn, I think, on d3 um, as well. Maybe I'm misremembering exactly, but I think that's more or less right. So I have three pawns on, on the seventh rank, second rank of the board, and then one pawn just, just behind it. And there's nothing you can do about it at a certain point. They're just too far advanced. And I queen the pawn, and I made it a couple of moves later um, in the middle of the board. So Yeah, just a fun game. I definitely, like, uh, you know, I often say I'll put the game in the show description and listeners should play through it, but I emphasize it for this one. Mildly reminiscent of... Um, of uh, Right, uh, Gufeld Kavalik with the, with ah, the okay. pawns just rolling, rolling through the center, um, and sacrifice after sacrifice. At, at least uh, as the game progressed, yeah. But I couldn't even tell when I played through the game because uh, initially it didn't look that imposing for you. I was like, did he even sacrifice a piece or did he just blunder? Right, no, no it was a sack. It was a sack. <laughs> okay. No, because if I yeah. didn't make the sack, I was worried that he was just going to get this death grip on the f five square. He was going to plant a knight in f five, and I would just suffocate with this, with that piece there. So that's why <clears throat> why I, I sacrificed the, the piece. Okay, fun stuff. And yeah. last thing, possibly, Dennis, okay. uh, I want to hear a little more about attending this this uh, World Championship in 2007 mm-hmm. in Mexico City. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a really uh, re- really pleasant experience. It was not that well attended. I was a little disappointed by that, but it was just fun to hang out in, in the press room. So, um, a, a good friend of mine, who's a chess player, um, Alex Herrera. Um, not, not a master, although actually in correspondence chess, he, I think he is a, a pretty good master in, in that discipline. But um, yeah, we're, we're good friends for, for many years, and uh, we both had a little time. So we spend about a, a week. We, we were there for, I would say, about half the event that um, Anand won. So that was when, again, this is kind of part of this, this whole transition from the split era to the unified title. So Anand won this with, I think, uh, Kramnik and, and Svidler, or no, Kramnik and Gelfentine for second, and then you had the Anand-Kramnik match the next year that Anand won, and then that was the end of all of the... the no, no, actually there was still the Anand-Topalov, right? So Topalov had the match with Kamsky. Anyway, Mexico City 2007 was a lot of fun. So, you know, you, you had the uh, you had the, um, the the playing hall, um, and that we really didn't have access to, but I w- would basically hang out in the press room with... Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember the, the, the Grandmaster's name, but it, w- it was just a lot of fun. So we just analyzed for, for hours there. Um, Frederick Friedel was there, so he was kind of uh, kind of fun to talk to. And yeah. um, had some field trips to go see the pyramids um, one of the days. So it was just, uh, just a really nice time. Yeah, and that tournament, I mean, Kramnik, Anand, Svidler, Morzevich, Leko, Gelfon, a young Aronian, right. and a young Grishuk, uh, yeah. quote, quite a lineup. Yeah. So you say you didn't you didn't go to the hall. Did you see those those guys around I did. much? Actually, or? yeah. So I have in the other room, it's not a, a video podcast, but I don't know, maybe you can take a picture of it or something. Um, I have a chessboard that I got all of them to sign. Oh, and, that's fun. And uh, Morozovich, being the uh, the unusual player he, he is, was about to uh, sign on one of the dark squares. So it would be readable, <laughs> right. but they kind of realized, oh no, I got to sign on a light square. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
That's funny. Uh, um, <laughs> okay. Um, and any other stories like that, Dennis, before we uh, wrap up here? Well, I also went to the, the 95 World Championship at the, the World Trade Center. So I went to about five or six of those games. And um, I, I can hardly recommend that. So even when I was a kid, um, barely playing in tournaments. Uh, so I, I grew up in Las Vegas, but I would often go and, and play in these Southern California tournaments. But what I would often do is um, after my game had finished, I would actually be one of the uh, the wall the wall board, you know. Oh, yeah, I, I, I did a few that. of those. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was just always a, a really nice thing. So whenever you get a chance to just watch in person uh, top players playing and to, to kind of be able to hang around um, grandmasters when they're analyzing for each other, right, not just doing it for, for a general audience, it, it's just a really cool experience. So, you know, if you're playing in a, in a big tournament, and you see a cup, you know, like a grandmaster doing a postmortem, you know, see if you can kind of sneak over there and, um, yeah. you know, unobtrusively catch what they're doing. Because I think it's just, it rubs off on you. And, and it's, it's part of the joy of the game that it's yeah. not just, you know, they're, they're not selling you something. It's not packaged material. It's just, you get to see them being themselves, just, you know, not kind of holding back. Oh, I, I should say one more thing about the Mexico City thing. So, um, Kramnik and Gelfand, so that they had drawn a game and um before they went so i, I would attend the press conferences and uh, but before they they did it in this case they had a little postmortem so it was like a board to the side in the press room and and they were analyzing and it was just it was savage um <laughs> not in terms of like them arguing with each other but just the the speed which was which, which, which they yeah, were I'm blasting sure. variations yeah. out i mean it was it was incredible and, and so there you get to see, you know, what's going on. So it's not them, again, trying to, to speak to, to a general audience. I mean, that's great. I'm, I'm glad they do that. But it's really cool to see these guys in their element, what they're capable of. Oh, along those lines, I got to tell you one more chess story. Sure. So um, I mentioned Shirazi earlier. So the first tournament where I think I scored against titled players. No, I think I'd drawn, but like, this first time I beat an IM. And, um, so I... I beat Shirazi and I just actually blew him off the board. And what's weird about this, so um, I had a, a graveyard job, graveyard shift job in, in Las Vegas. So I, I'd worked that job, drove to California four hours away, played in this tournament. First round, blow Shirazi off the board. Round two, I'm playing Larry Christensen near his PQs. And yeah. we draw this crazy game. And so I'm thinking, ah, here I am. It's the next level of my career. I'm, I'm moving up in the world. I'm one of the big boys. or on my way to being one of the big boys. And then I had a postmortem with Christensen. <laughs> huh. and, and he's showing me variation after variation that I did not see. And at a certain point, now, of course, it was, it was a crazy game. And that was, that's his, his specialty. I mean, that's where he's great. I mean, he's just an amazing, you know, super imaginative uh, tactician. But we're looking at all these variations, and I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing this one. I'm not seeing that one. And I had no concept of a bunch of them. And at a certain point, I'm thinking, it's just not fair that I drew with this guy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> How is this possible that I drew? You know, and he saw all these cool things. Now, I got stronger since then, but still, I mean, you know, I, I have no doubt that if I had the same, you know, kind of experience with, with let's say, Kramnik or, you know, some other top guy, and they would show me just endless variations that I, I didn't see. And, you know, it, it's just remarkable what these guys can do. And, yeah. and we don't really get to see it. Um, well, we see it a little more than we used to now in the digital age, the streaming age. But, yeah. Right. It's, but yeah. we see it more, but, but not as much. But, like I said, that was, again, just really kind of remarkable watching 
that that Kramnik Gelfand um, postmortem, where it's like yeah, and it's also I think they dumb it down for us. <laughs> yeah, no, but this was this, like, this, this was just them. So that's what I'm saying. They, yeah, there was, they, exactly. No one was no one was like part of this, but you get to see them like moving pieces really quickly, and you know like just set it back up, boom 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 boom, set it up, you know, and and what was kind of cool is like they did this for about four or five minutes. And then it's just like they both sort of simultaneously recognize, okay, it's done. And now we, they walk up for right, the conference yeah. and then give us, you know, the, the baby talk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in one of my interviews with Ben Feingold, and he's told this story many times, he was uh, at a tournament where Kasparov and Karpov played and he figured out where they were going to have to sit for the postmortem. And he like went and sat there and waited and then described a similar scenario where he was just like, my goodness, these guys are just on a whole nother level when he uh, watched them uh, actually analyze. Um, all right. Well, Dennis, this has been great. You've told some great stories, given some, uh, some great chess advice. Uh, any, uh, closing words before we say our goodbyes? Um, okay. I can throw in a plug for Ashland University. Yeah, of course. Don't so, worry. I was going to do that. Yes. Too. So, but go ahead. Um, so I, I'm the chess coach there. So if you're in or near central Ohio and Ashland University is somewhere on your radar of schools, we are offering some scholarship money for, for chess. So if you're a chess player, and you, you're interested, uh, by all means, contact me about that. We might be able to do we something. We get some chess parents listening too. Yeah, so absolutely. Take, take note, chess right. parents. Yeah. And of course, I give lessons and I blog and all that. But, uh, and I would just say you, you did, a, did a great job. So nice, nice uh, interviewing there. So, oh, thank you. Appreciate it. You seem it. to be the right man fun. for the job. That, so you said there was, <laughs> there was a need and, uh, you know, the need is, is in good part, is in large part filled because you, you know what you're doing. So. Very good. Thanks. I appreciate it. And again, the blog is called Chess Mind. And listeners, it, uh, as we were saying, you can just get it. You sign up for free and it's just emailed to you when you have a new post and then right. read it or don't. And while you're at it, you might want to sign up for the Perpetual Chess Link Fest as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, it's, and there's two blogs. So it's the Substack one, the Chessmind substack.com because the other one is still up for now but right yeah that's a good point and i'll also i'll also link to it front and center uh in the notes for the show so listeners can just click through click through as well as the the couple of games that we discussed so thanks a lot dennis i will uh i will be uh reading you um as always uh appreciate it thank you very much thanks to everyone who helps make perpetual chess possible Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode.
Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy. Interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood? Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.